Hey, it's Jen. And just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest on coronavirus and other stories, keep up with your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's jump into the news roundup. My campaign for president, I made a commitment. I made a commitment that would provide student debt relief. And I'm honoring that commitment today. After years of debate, the White House has a plan for student debt relief. On Wednesday, Biden announced his administration is canceling up to $10,000 in debt for borrowers, earning up to $125,000. That goes up to twenty grand in debt relief for Pell Grant recipients. For some, it's too much. For others, not enough. But for some 20 million borrowers, their debt will be wiped out completely. It is the big news this week, so we'll jump right in. Joining me in studio is Julie Rovner, chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News, also host of the podcast, What the Health? Julie, good to have you back. Nice to be here. And Molly Ball is a national political correspondent for Time and the author of the biography, Pelosi. Molly, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So this plan, the student loan plan, was a huge part of President Biden's agenda, Molly, I'll start with you. How closely does this match his original campaign promise involving student debt? Well, during the campaign, he promised to relieve $10,000 of student debt. And what we saw the administration do this week went a little bit further than that. As you just said, there was that extra $10,000 of debt relief for Pell Grant recipients who, by definition, are low-income borrowers in order to qualify uh, for that federal grant in the first place. So the administration, and we know that this policy had been the subject of fierce debate within the administration between different uh, actors within the White House, some of the more more conservative-leaning economists uh, arguing against it on the grounds that it, it could fuel inflation, which has already been such a problem uh, substantively and politically for the White House, uh, while a lot of uh, progressives inside and outside the administration argued that not only was this something that the president promised, but uh, it was something that, that was, was necessary as, as an anti-poverty measure and, and in order to, uh, to, to help uh, young people get, uh, be more financially stable. So a lot of celebration on the left, even as some you know, criticized the president for not going as far as they would have liked. There were a lot uh, of voices on the left who would have liked to see him cancel you know, $50,000 or even just a, a blanket cancellation of all student debt. Uh, there are, there's also the potential for, for some legal challenges with the way that this has been done. So I think we won't know the full shape of, of, of the outcome here for several months. Right. And of course, the, the big headline was the 10 grand or 20 grand debt cancellation, depending on what category someone falls in. But there were other details announced as well. You know, Julie, a moratorium on paying student loans was supposed to expire next week. Where does that stand now? Well, that got extended to the end of the year. This is something that's been a balancing act for this administration, that people are, some people, many people are very strapped, and they want to make sure that those people get relief, but they don't want to flood too much money into the economy because they, they fear that will fuel inflation. And that's what sort of sparked, I'm, I've been surprised 
surprised by the backlash to this. I mean, I've seen a lot of policies come and go, but this one just really set up people. You had people on the far left saying this isn't nearly enough. And you had people on the right saying, why on earth should we be forgiving loans? These people took out loans with the promise that they would pay them back. And now they're not going to pay them back. This is a ridiculous precedent to set. And just the vehemence uh, of people on both sides has been really something that this really touched a nerve. Alice tweets, be sure to mention all the congressional representatives and rich people who had PPP loan forgiveness, of course, during the pandemic. Then mention, she says, the subsidies given to multi-billion dollar corporations. That can help put $10 or ten dollars or $20,000 in college loan forgiveness in perspective. On the other hand, Martin emails us, forgiving student debt treats the symptoms, not the disease of degree inflation. The more money the government piles into the educational industry, the more ways that industry will find to spend it. And I think, you know, this tension we're seeing, we saw, I think, very quickly those kinds of responses. I think one big question I have, Molly, as we look ahead to the midterms, what might this mean? Uh, well, I think the politics of this uh, are, are are interesting because on the one hand, even as Democratic prospects have seemed to improve looking forward to the midterms over the past few months, uh, you know, as gas prices have fallen and Congress has gotten stuff done and so on, uh, there uh, there is a feeling that, you know, young voters still are, are decidedly unenthusiastic about the president in particular and about voting in the midterms in general. And so this potentially uh, gives the administration an argument uh, to take to younger voters and say that they've kept their promise to them. However, you do see uh, Republicans and even some more moderate Democrats being critical of this plan, uh, either on, on the grounds that the listener raised that this, uh, you know, creates perverse incentives for a, a sector, the, the higher education sector that already has seen crazy inflation ballooning costs for many years. Uh, and Republicans also making a fairness-based argument, you know, as, as the first listener said, plenty of people uh, have seen relief from the government. Uh, but at a time when, you know, the job market is very tight, unemployment is low, it's not hard for people to find jobs, uh, making the argument that, uh, you know, this this relief uh, is, is targeted, you know, at Democratic constituencies and is unfair either to the majority of, of Americans who don't have college degrees uh, or to, you know, people who, who paid off their student loans in the past. To that point, uh, I just we were talking a little bit about some of our listeners' perspectives. You're hearing uh, similar arguments, of course, as you say, Molly, on, on both sides from political leaders. Uh, Democrats, both progressive and moderate, have long advocated for this relief. But uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican, of course, wrote in a statement, quote, President Biden's student loan socialism is a slap in the face to every family who sacrificed to save for college, every graduate who paid their debt, and every American who chose a certain career path or volunteered to serve in our armed forces in order to avoid taking on debt. He called the policy astonishingly unfair. Meanwhile, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts on MSNBC responded to the GOP's criticism that this forgiveness is elitist. Bring it on. $20,000 in student loan debt forgiveness goes to people who had Pell Grants. 95% of the people who had Pell Grants come from families with incomes of less than $60,000. The people who are being helped here, 42% of them don't even have a college diploma. These are not people who went to Harvard the way that Tom Cotton did. She's referring there, of course, to Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. And I want to talk a little bit more about some of those details. So this relief will affect millions of borrowers. Julie, 
What do we know about how soon they might see the $10,000 or so wiped from their student debt balances? Well, of course, this is likely to be challenged in court. Uh, as we said, the you know one of the things about some of the, the government loans that have been forgiven for others is that those did go through Congress, the PPP loans. Say what you will about them. Um, though they were an act of Congress. This was not. And there's been some debate all along about whether or not uh, the, the administration really does have the authority to do this. But we, we also know, and I think this has been sort of lost in this week's debate about how much student debt really hinders the rest of the economy. That, you know, young people and now middle-aged people who still have student debt are unable to buy houses. They're unable, they're, you know, they feel forced to pursue higher paying jobs instead of maybe jobs that would help the public more, school teachers and social workers and, and things like that. And so, you know, the having all of this student debt has a perverse effect on society and the economy. And I think that's been sort of uh, glossed over in the sort of outrage this week. I think one of the objections, though, from the from some on the left has been how this program works, how to go about this goal of relieving this problem of student debt. Um, you know, one listener asked, is the student loan forgiveness applicable to current students? I think the answer to that is, uh, I'm not sure if the, what the answer to that is, but I think it gets to the question of, you know, going forward, where does this policy go? I mean, Molly, do you have a sense of is this just the beginning or is this all there's going to be? I think that's the question a lot of a lot of current and future students are asking. Yeah. Well, one thing that the administration has said they're trying to do is to restructure the entire uh, higher education borrowing system that the government oversees. And so one part of that that came with this plan uh, was a change in uh, the way the, the income-based repayment plans that some people are on, uh, reducing the threshold from 10 percent to 5 percent of uh, for people who are are in uh, lower paying occupations in particular. Uh, but, you know, one of the arguments against this plan, as we sort of alluded to before, has been the sort of moral hazard argument, right? That it only incentivizes universities to keep uh, extend, keep keep uh, having these extremely expensive tuition costs and incentivizes students to keep taking out more and more of these loans on the assumption that someday the government will just say, never mind. And so we don't know where that's headed. And we don't know uh, what the administration or Congress may be able to do that will address the rising cost of college because that really is not covered by, by this plan. And uh, my colleagues are telling me uh, in the studio that, yes, indeed, current borrowers are are covered by this. But again, I mean, I think it raises the question of what happens going forward. Julie, you mentioned legal challenges briefly. How might that factor in here? Well, this whole, we could see a stay on this or some kind of an injunction if someone goes in and, uh, and it's, it's, although it's, it's not totally clear who would have standing to do this, um, that to, to be hurt by the forgiving of debt. I suppose current students who are not without loans might say that the, that colleges and universities might raise their tuition to, to pay for this. So we could definitely see this halted at least temporarily while it goes through the courts. The other thing we didn't mention is that this is only undergraduate loans. This doesn't apply to graduate school, which is by and large way more expensive and pre presents an entire another layer of arguments about whether we should be helping people go to law school or medical school or, or, you know, even just get a master's degree in something. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. 
And let's bring in one more expert guest. Joshua Meyer is the domestic security correspondent with USA Today. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Now, let's check in on the former president, specifically his legal tribulations. A Florida judge says a redacted affidavit justifying the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago must be released today by noon. So everyone's watching for that. Josh, the Justice Department filed this redacted affidavit yesterday. Do we know anything about it so far? You know, we don't, Sarah, but I think, you know, um, I mean, today is a big day in, in this sort of crazy story with a lot of twists and turns. But it may turn into uh, a sort of a nothing burger, depending on what's in the newly unsealed affidavit. So this is the key roadmap to the investigation. And by every uh, policy and statute and, and, and norm, the Justice Department usually keeps these top secret because if you d- disclose any of the details of an affidavit, which is the you know, the sworn testimony by an FBI agent or other investigator about what the investigation entails, what they're looking for in the search and what they hope to find, you know, you're telegraphing to the people under investigation what's going to happen. So what we think is going to happen, and the judge has already accepted the Justice Department redactions, is that it's really going to contain not much at all, um, especially about who the witnesses are, uh, what information they have, and, and especially who they're pursuing in terms of a target in the criminal investigation, everybody from uh, former President Donald Trump to Rudy Giuliani to others. So, you know, uh, I would urge people not to get too excited about this. Uh, but, you know, you never know. <laughs> I mean, that's been the tension all along, hasn't it, between the, the, the desire and the calls for transparency and the, the need to not compromise an active investigation. The federal judge says redacted portions include, quote, uh, the identities of witnesses, law enforcement agents and uncharged parties, the investigation strategy, direction, scope, sources and methods, and grand jury information protected by federal rule of criminal procedure. So as you say, Josh, a lot of redactions. I mean, what will you be looking for when this comes out? Well, we'll be looking for anything, uh, anything, uh, because when you look at all the stuff that should be redacted um, in any case, especially a politically sensitive case like this one, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what's going to be there at all. And the problem is going to be uh, that Trump and his, you know, uh, his supporters and acolytes and, and proxies are going to just try to twist uh, and manipulate this to their political advantage and say, well, you know, this is just more. Uh, evidence of of political machinations going on when, in fact, the opposite is true. When you investigate something as sensitive as this, including the the, the theft or or just um, it, you know accidental taking of of top secret documents from the government and storing them in a in a storage you know locker at, at Mar-a-Lago where all sorts of people are walking back and forth right nearby. You know, it, it's it's a huge problem, but the problem with that is that it it's also designed to protect those under investigation. If it doesn't rise to the level of a prosecutable criminal offense, then that's why it stays secret because nobody really knows about it. So Trump is trying to have it both ways here. He's trying to you know get them to release the details of the affidavit. I think in order to find out what they have and what they might be looking for. But uh, at the same time, you know, it it also opens him up to, um, you know, further scrutiny about what he might have done with the documents, why he took them and why he refused to give them back repeatedly over a period of a year and a half. Well, to that point, uh, former President Trump's legal team asked that a special master be appointed to screen seized documents for classified material. Again, these are documents seized from Mar-a-Lago by the Justice Department. Molly, you know, some analysts have pointed out that by doing this, the Trump team is essentially acknowledging at least some of these documents are classified government material. What could this mean for the case going forward? And what's the strategy here? 
Yeah, well, Trump's strategy has really been all over the map. And, uh, you know, we know that, as usual, he is his own chief strategist, uh, both in the legal and the political sense. Uh, and, and you see him sort of pursuing sort of short-term political gains, trying to get his followers ginned up and and going back to, you know, I think all, all the Trump supporters have a sort of muscle memory for these claims of unfairness, claims of a witch hunt, claims that uh, the president's being persecuted by an out-of-control, you know, deep state uh, criminal justice apparatus. Uh, so we've heard all of this before, and he's got a lot of practice in, in hitting these notes politically. Uh, but we know that he's been having trouble finding lawyers who will make these arguments for him because they are very flimsy legal arguments. And even the, the filing that you mentioned, uh, asking for a special master, uh, is, is, is sort of a mess legally. I'm not a lawyer either, but from, from what the, the, the good lawyers have said. Uh, and so we see him sort of, you know, throwing out these legal filings more as a, as a messaging proposition than anything else. Uh, and, you know, we did see a bump in uh, the Trump's approval among Republicans as, as a result of uh, what he's called a raid on his private residence. Uh, but uh, most, uh, most Republicans don't think that that necessarily helps the party politically. They de- tend to feel that the more Trump is in the spotlight, the more uh, Trump is in, in enmeshed in this, you know, sort of perpetual miasmic cloud of scandal that seems to follow him everywhere, the more it just reminds people of, of the exhaustion uh, the, that they felt with, with the whole uh, political uh, scene when Trump was there. So, uh, you know, most Republicans wish that Trump would sort of be quiet and go away until the midterms. Unlikely. <laughs> um Another detail that came out this week, speaking of these classified documents, a 2021 email from the National Archives to the former president's attorneys made some headlines. Josh, remind us exactly what that email said and why it's a big deal now. Well, yeah. So, I mean, what Molly said is absolutely true. I mean, there it's almost like you could get whiplash in terms of trying to follow all the different excuses and explanations and justifications by the Trump campaign, uh, or, you know, uh, if he's running again, and it appears that he is. But, you know, the National Archives has been trying to get these documents back for, for, like I said, 18 months or so. Uh, They have identified them as top secret, uh, and in some cases classified uh, at a TSSCI level, which means uh, uh, um, sensitive compartmented information, which is access-only programs that are so top secret about nuclear weapons, uh, undercover uh, CIA uh, officers overseas, sources and methods and things like that, that you literally have to have a special special clearance to get to, to get access to them. And you have to look at them at a, a sensitive compartmented information facility called a SCIF. I mean, there's a lot of safeguards in place. And so the archives has been trying to get these back. That's what the memo said. And Trump's own uh, White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, agreed with that and said, yes, these are classified documents. They need to be returned uh, forthwith to to the archives, which is basically a bunkered facility like Fort Knox for documents um, and memorabilia. Uh, and uh, you know, we'll we'll do what we can to do that. The problem is he's just the white he was just the White House counsel. Um, Trump, you know, does what he wants and decided he wanted to keep the documents. And again, nobody's really sure why he's holding on to these so tightly. Um, I spoke to a lot of people for some stories I've written about this recently, including people that ran the National Archives security programs. Um, and they said clearly it's not just letters from Kim Jong-un uh, that that they're trying to get back. It's, it's much more potentially serious things about nuclear programs, uh, Russia, China, espionage. 
And, you know, just to give you a sense of why there's this urgency, in 2019, there were two uh, women uh, who were suspected Chinese intelligence operatives who were arrested uh, for trespassing at at Mar-a-Lago. And there's a lot of suspicion among law enforcement that they were there to try to get access to documents or to just eavesdrop. And, you know, this is when Trump, uh, as president, was was holding court uh, in the restaurant and talking about uh, missile strikes and uh, what kind of uh, military posture we have around the world. I mean, it's just a dreadful uh, situation in terms of national security threats on every level. So so the National Archives has been trying very, very diligently to get those documents back. Before we move on and talk about this week's primaries, Josh, I want to talk about one more memo from the past few years that we're learning more about. This one involves former Attorney General William Barr. Uh, Josh, what's going on there? Yeah, so that is a big deal. And um, you know, I don't think it's really gotten as much press attention, uh, media attention as it should. And, you know, essentially, you know, Barr has been uh, on this uh, reputation rehabilitation uh, offensive recently. I mean, he came out with a book about how he, you know, was trying to fight back. But the fact of the matter is that this this redacted, uh, uh, unredacted document shows that when he was the attorney general of the United States, the top law enforcement official, instead of acting in the best interests of the American public, and the Justice Department and the rule of law, he was basically acting as as Trump's own defense lawyer, and he was looking for every possible excuse he could to ignore the findings of the Mueller investigation about, um, you know, not only collusion, potential collusion with Russians in the uh, in the election, but also an obstruction of justice and firing the uh, uh, FBI director Jim Comey and others. And so there was clearly uh, things that the Mueller investigation found that were criminal prosecutable offenses. Um, or even if they didn't rise to that level, that they were of great concern. And Barr basically dismissed any effort to even look at them and, and whitewashed it and gave Trump, uh, you know, just a big thumbs up on the way out the door. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Josh Meyer of USA Today, Julie Rovner of Kaiser Health News and Times Molly Ball. Before we move on, a quick correction to our student loan coverage from 1A listener Andrew, who says graduate loans do qualify for debt relief. He writes, debt forgiveness applies to all federally funded loans, graduate or undergraduate. It doesn't apply to private loans, uh, but not all loans for graduate studies are private. Thank you, Andrew. For what it's worth, according to the Washington Post, roughly 1.6 million borrowers have grad plus loans from the federal government. We are still getting our heads around all of this. I do want to move on and talk about primaries uh, for just a moment. Um, In upstate New York, Democrat Pat Ryan beat his Republican opponent, Mark Molinaro, in a special election for a House seat. The district in question was one President Biden narrowly won in 2020 with fewer than two points. Uh, Molly, what's the significance of that race? Well, this is an election that Republicans uh, were expected to win. I believe it got a little bit redder in uh, redistricting, and you had two quite strong candidates, uh, both uh, county executives uh, well-known to their constituencies, well-qualified, running good campaigns, well-funded campaigns. So you can't really say that there was sort of a lopsided effort in either direction. And in a year that has broadly uh, been expected to be a strong year for Republicans, uh, people would have expected the Republican candidate to, to win pretty easily. And instead, uh, you had the Democratic candidate win and uh, on, on, a, on a message that was very heavy uh, on abortion rights. And 
uh, this is consistent with the trend that we have seen since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, uh, that you have uh, stronger Democratic turnout, uh, stronger voting for Democrats on the part of uh, independents and perhaps even some Republicans. There's really been uh, a shift in the political tide since then. And and this is only the latest evidence of that. So you have uh, Democrats who had been, you know, uh, fatalistic uh, to the point of being depressed uh, uh, for the last several months now now really thinking that their political fortunes may have turned around in advance of the midterms and this being more evidence of that. Moving on to Florida, former Florida Governor Charlie Crist will challenge incumbent Ron DeSantis in the state's governor's race. And he has what he thinks is a winning strategy. I'm going to beat him because I'm running on love and love always wins. And if he wants to run on hate and culture wars and dividing people and making people hate each other, that's his turf. It's not mine. That was Representative Christ speaking on MSNBC on Wednesday. This is the second time in eight years he's been nominated as the Democratic candidate for Florida's governor. Of course, he began his political career as a Republican before joining the Democrats about a decade ago. Julie, does love win in 2022? <laughs> what does Chris' nomination tell us? Well, one of the things I think Chris' nomination tells us is how far the Republican Party has moved in the last decade. I mean, Chris was not a real, you know, one of those very moderate Republicans. He was a pretty strong Republican when he was governor of Florida. And now he seems to be a pretty strong Democrat. Um, and, you know, you see Ron DeSantis, who wants to be the next Donald Trump, uh, the, the incumbent governor, who obviously first has to, to win re-election. Um, but, you know, the the Republicans, as as a party in general, seem to have lurched pretty far to the right. Um, and there's all these Republicans who are sort of searching for their party. Molly, do you think we'll see more of this, some of these searching Republicans becoming Democrats or what happens next year? Well, Florida is definitely a state that has trended red in the past several years. You know, DeSantis won this election very narrowly four years ago by, I believe, only about 30,000 votes out of more than 8 million. Uh, but he's popular in Florida. And uh, Chris is seen as, as, as a relatively weak candidate, I would say, particularly against, you know, uh, DeSantis is widely seen as a potential na- national candidate, someone very popular among Republicans nationally, uh, in part because of these fights he's picked. You know, he's seen as a, a fighter, a real sort of pugilistic uh, culture warrior. And, and, and a lot of Republicans like this, like that. You know, he's, he came into office, obviously, as a strong supporter of, of President Trump, although that's become uh, a little bit of a, a, an undercurrent of rivalry in that in that relationship. Uh, but, you know, Chris being being a retread, uh, being a, a, a former Republican, uh, it may be difficult uh, for and, and the Florida Democratic Party has a long history of uh, dysfunction function and, and, and bumbling. And, and, you know, DeSantis has more than $100 million in the bank. So it's going to be an uphill battle, I think, for Democrats in Florida, even if the political winds have tilted in their direction. And Julie, you know, Florida has been a battleground for some of the nation's most hot button issues, including COVID-19 policy, transgender health care. DeSantis has been right in the middle of those. And as we've mentioned, is a likely contender for the 2024 uh, presidential election. What are the stakes here beyond Florida? I mean, we, it really is a test of where, you know, obviously, as Molly says, every every contest like this is local and depends on, you know, the the 
situation on the ground, how much money each candidate has, where the where the voters are. But in general, you know, Ron DeSantis has been sort of the poster child. Florida rather famously has this don't say gay uh, uh, law for its schools. Um, they're trying to, there's a 15-week ban on abortion. Florida has always been one of the few states in the South where abortion was fairly widely available and their efforts to, to roll that back even further. So DeSantis is really trying to make Florida, I think, more like the rest of the South. And less like Florida. And I think this will be a test of whether or not that's going to happen. And quickly, Molly, I mean, how much does this say about where the GOP might be going? Is DeSantis the future or is there some other future? Well, that's what we're going to find out in the 2024 presidential uh, race. But we do see that race already coming into focus with various Republican contenders starting to tour the country, starting to seek people out, particularly in Iowa and New Hampshire. So, you know, as soon as soon as those polls close for the midterms, that 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 race is going to be underway. I'm Sarah McCammon. We will hear more from you and from our guests in just a moment. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. On Wednesday, the Uvalde, Texas School District fired police chief Pete Arredondo. The announcement came exactly three months after a gunman killed 19 students and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, while hundreds of armed officers waited outside the classroom for more than an hour. The school board meeting on Wednesday began with comments from the public who were clear on what they wanted. You don't care squat about these families. If it was one of your children, heads would be rolling right now. But because it's not, you don't care. I have messages for PR and all the law enforcement that were there that day. Burn in your badge and step down. You don't deserve to wear one. Arredondo had been on unpaid leave since June. He has said he did not consider himself the scene commander that day and is fighting the termination. Now let's move on to health news. It's the end of an era, or it feels that way. Dr. Anthony Fauci is stepping down in December. Dr. Fauci was, of course, the face of the Biden administration's coronavirus response and has led the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984. He spoke with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly on Tuesday. There are so many beautiful things about science, a a feeling of gratification and contribution to mankind That's what I'm going to stress to the younger generation of scientists and people who are considering going into science. Public service, particularly in the arena of public health, medicine, and science, is an extraordinary profession. And I want to encourage young people to do that. They should not be put aback by the politicization. That is there. It's unfortunate. But we can do it even in that context. Julie, I know you've been covering Dr. Fauci for many years. What legacy is he leaving behind? Well, he's been a lightning rod for much of his career at the NIH. It's not like COVID was the first time he saw the politicization of science. He was the head of NAAID during the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. That was when I first met him. Um, And he's, you know, he's always been very candid. He's always been very open with 
AIDS protesters at the time with health and science reporters. He's always been very available, um, you know, likes to likes to communicate. And I think that's something that we've seen less and less of over the years uh, in government in general, in science, that it becomes harder and harder to, you know, they, they're in their sort of little ivory towers. And I think Dr. Fauci is one of those people who always wanted to be available, who always wanted, wanted to explain what we knew and what we didn't and what we needed to know and sort of bring people along. And that's always been his effort. Um, and I think that made him stand out from a lot of his colleagues who were a little more media shy shall we say. Molly, as much as Dr. Fauci may say that, uh, you know, students, future public health students shouldn't be taken aback by politicization, that has been an absolute reality of his career. As, as Julie said, he's been criticized by the GOP since he was appointed to lead the White House COVID response in particular. What made him such a target? Yeah, although let's remember, you know, he was also uh, there in the Trump administration and President Trump liked him until he didn't, right? Uh, Until he started uh, saying things that were politically inconvenient. And eventually uh, it was the subject of this enormous backlash. uh, And you do have Republicans who, you know, had he not uh, chosen to to step down, there were Republicans who, who were looking at ways that if they took the House of Representatives, they could try to fire him. Uh, despite his his status uh, as a government appointee. Uh, so, you know, he, he really became, uh, in a way, the scapegoat for all of the, the problems that anybody had with any aspect of the COVID response because, as Julie said, he sort of chose to take it upon himself uh, to be the spokesman to the public and to take those slings and arrows. And I think, uh, you know, that's something that, that, that somebody had to do and that nobody else was really uh, stepping up to, to do. And that's such an important part of public health. And in, in fact, it's sort of the linchpin of public health, right? It's it's how you communicate with the public about how society is supposed to respond to a challenge as immense as uh, a global pandemic. And, uh, you know, obviously some things went well and some things didn't in that whole effort. And uh, it's not true that, that Fauci was in charge of all of it. He was just the one who was was brave enough and bold enough to go out and try to communicate with the public. And this, this sometimes also led to him sort of freelancing and, and seeming to make policy on the fly, in part because in both administrations, administrations, we did not see uh, very good coordination between all of the different uh, agencies and entities that had some piece of the response, whether it was HHS or the CDC or all of the different sub-agencies. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think Fauci sort of sort of stepped into the breach for better and worse. And as you say, uh, if, if you're a young scientist looking at, at all the, uh, can I say crap on public radio, all the crap he took for I it, <laughs> it might give you pause about whether you want to step into that arena. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, the the difficulty of public health decisions, you're making policy on the fly as the science is still coming in. Um, You're under tremendous public scrutiny. But, Julie, you know, from from the perspective of a health reporter, you talk to a lot of researchers, a lot of scientists with the hindsight being 2020. What do you think Fauci did well and what might he have done better in retrospect? He does tend to lapse into science speak often. I mean, he's very willing to come out and talk, but you can't always understand what it is that he's talking about. Um, he, he's not one of their, you know, they've, I've seen a number of scientists who are really gifted at sort of being able to put it in layman's terms, and that's not his expertise. Um, his expertise is that he is an expert uh, and that he explains the the actual science. Um, 
But and and I think as Molly said, he often did come out and freelance, and that was because, for better or worse, he was the person who was there. He was the face, and he would ask be asked questions that were not necessarily uh, his to answer, but he would try to answer them anyway. But you know, I will say he was always there. Was no one ever questioned whether he had you know, the best intentions in terms of public health, in terms of science, uh, in in terms of trying to forward things. Public health is always going to be uh, controversial because it basically is a matter of doing things for the entire population that could hinder things for individuals. And we saw that obviously in spades during COVID, you know, when we asked people to, to lock down and wear masks and do all kinds of other things that impinged on their individual rights in order to try to keep the population more healthy. And so that by definition is going to be controversial. And he knew that and understood it. Such a balancing of, of different concerns, different risks, and sometimes with, with Impart with partial information. Josh, your thoughts on Fauci's political le- legacy? Well, um, you know, I've been covering him since the AIDS crisis in the in the 80s. And I, I have to agree with Molly and Julie that I mean, this is a this is a um, sort of an he, he's whatever you think of his specific policies and, and politics. I mean, this guy is a national treasure. I mean, as a public servant, I mean, he's been doing this for decades. Uh, as they said, he's endured just unbelievable uh, bru- unbelievably brutal slings and arrows and, and character assassination all the way from AIDS to now. But I think that, you know, he has held the line. And I think that in, in the AIDS crisis, he advocated for a lot of policies that helped save lives. I think he helped save a lot of lives in the COVID uh, crisis when the Trump administration was trying to politicize it and downplay the significance of it and the and how rapidly it was spreading because they didn't want people to find out about it. He you know, tried to say as much as he could in public, and and you know, in and I, I'm sure everybody's watched all the hearings where where uh, Rand Paul was was you know criticizing him. But I think that you know he he it, history will will look very kindly on on Tony Fauci's service. I mean, he it's not just AIDS. Uh, you know, I cover security issues, so the the intersection of global security and and public health crisis is very is is a very strong connection. And he's been active on the swine flu. On MERS, which was another one, Ebola, COVID nineteen, he played a significant role in the early two thousands in creating PEPFAR, which was the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. Um, and, and you know, for me as a security reporter, he was especially uh, instrumental in driving development of biodefense drugs and vaccines following the nine eleven terrorist attacks. Remember when everybody was freaked out about that, and we had the anthrax attacks and everything. He was instrumental in trying to figure out how to respond to those. You so, mentioned, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's sad that he's leaving. Josh, you mentioned swine flu. I just have to say that takes me back to covering uh, Nebraska agriculture back at the beginning of my career. And um, as you may remember, pork producers did not like that name very much. Uh, Julie, I want to talk about um, abortion policy, something you and I both cover a lot. Three new trigger laws went into effect yesterday, Tennessee, Idaho, and Texas. Uh, A judge has blocked a trigger ban in North Dakota for now, but we're continuing to see these, these laws implemented in a lot of states that frankly already have very restrictive laws in the books, right? So what, uh, what difference does this make now? We're mostly going at this point from 
restrictions on abortion to bans on abortion. Um, in Idaho, the, there was a, a stay of a small piece of the ban that has to do with this fight that's going on between the federal government and states about whether doctors uh, in emergency situations uh, can be held uh, criminally responsible for providing emergency care, in some cases abortion. Um, we've seen two different uh, court rulings on that this week. Um, so we're, we're fighting around the edges at this point, but there there is a statistic now that basically one out of three women in the United States lives in a state where abortion is banned. Um, and it's been, what, 60 days since the Supreme Court overturned Roe. So a lot of these things, a lot of these trigger bans did have delays in them. That's why we're seeing some of them take effect now that didn't take effect right away when the Supreme Court ruled. Um, but so far, there's been, you know, very, with very few exceptions, most of these bans have been taking effect. Some uh, have had delays written into them, into the statute. Others have been tied up in state or federal court, primarily state court at this stage, uh, given that the Supreme Court has already weighed in. But you alluded to that uh, challenge from the Biden administration to uh, the Idaho state law. This is, of course, under a federal labor law that provides protections for medical emergencies, essentially. I think it's safe to say that the two rulings we've had um, on that have been very limited. Uh, I think a lot of abortion rights advocates were hoping for a broader interpretation of that federal law and its protections. Um, but we're not seeing judges willing to throw out these state laws uh, by any any stretch of the means. Molly, uh, what's your sense of how the Biden administration has been challenge has been responding to this challenge um, of, of all of these laws taking effect on their watch and um, some of the criticism from Democrats that they're not doing enough? Yeah, not just that they are not doing enough, but that they really didn't see this coming when they certainly could have, and, and many people did. And people in the reproductive rights space certainly have been expecting this for years. And certainly uh, since the, the, the naming of Amy Coney Barrett to the court, and even more certainly since the decision was leaked back in May. And yet, once the decision actually came down, the administration seemed to be caught flat-footed, did not have uh, a set of uh, potential executive actions prepared that a lot of progressives were calling on them uh, to pursue did not have a legal strategy prepared, and we now see them coming out uh, and, and intervening, the Department of Justice intervening in some of these court cases. Uh, but it really was not clear at the time the decision dropped. And I think in the big picture, what we're seeing is just that the when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, they created a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, legally and logistically, you know, by definition, these trigger laws were all passed at a time uh, when Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. And the idea was they were preparation for a time when it wouldn't be. But that means that the implementation uh, raises a lot of questions, particularly in the states where the trigger law does not have a gestational limit. Uh, so courts are going to have to answer those questions. Legislatures are going to answer those questions. Uh, medical providers are going to have to answer those questions. And it just means that we're going to see ongoing fallout uh, on this question for, for months and probably years. And then the other question, of course, which we were talking about earlier, is just how voters will respond. Um, as these what were once sort of theoretical laws uh, are now reality, right? 
Yes, and 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 that has been uh, pretty unambiguous. I think when the decision came down, there was a feeling. You know, some Republicans even even thought maybe this is good for us because it energizes our base of of pro life voters. Uh, but ever since that referendum in Kansas that was so lopsided, a, a referendum uh, that the pro life uh, side really thought they had a chance to win, and instead uh, the the pro choice side won by twenty points in a, a solidly red state and across the country, as in that special election in New York that we were talking about earlier. Uh, we've seen uh, Democrats win elections where abortion was an issue, I think, particularly in state-level races, gubernatorial, state legislative races. Uh, you're going to see this continue to be an issue. And, it's and you know, because of all the uncertainties, you're going to continue to see cases in the news. Cases, you know, where a judge has prohibited a young rape victim from getting an abortion and so on. Uh, there's, going, it, it, there, there's no escaping this issue, and it does seem to be uh, mitigating in, in, in favor of the Democrats electorally. Moving on to the climate, much of the American Southwest continues to suffer from a severe drought. The lack of rainfall is drying up riverbeds. And this week, that led to a new discovery. These are awesome, awesome tracks. And these are normally underwater, so you don't usually get to see these. There's tons of them. He's talking about dinosaur tracks discovered in Texas at Dinosaur Valley State Park, about 60 miles from Fort Worth. The tracks are 113 million years old. That is a hard number to get my head around. And, you know, I hate to say it, but it feels very 2022 that this almost kind of fun story is the result of really a bad news story, which is this is from extreme weather. Um, Julie, just how bad is the drought in Texas? Well, of course, we saw, you talked about Fort Worth. It, the drought is so bad that when they finally got a lot of rain, it was so much rain that it ended up flooding. I mean, that's basically where we are. We are at extremes. Um, we've seen, you know, the, the two major reservoirs, obviously, in the west are down. I believe it's, it's 40 percent. It's They're way down. We're seeing this in Europe, too. That's not just a United States thing. Um, I think there were some, some sunken Nazi ships that uh, that were surfaced this week due to a drought in Italy. So it's this is something, these are, you know, I there was a story that we've seen, what is it, 5,000 year weather events in the last year. So it's Things, things are things that we said were not going to happen for thirty or forty years are happening in twenty twenty two. And just with the extremes, like the opposites, you know, it's creating real whiplash for people. Hard to plan um, around something like that. Julie Rovner is the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Molly Ball is a national political correspondent for Time, and Joshua Meyer is the domestic security correspondent with USA Today. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. Paige Osborne is our managing producer and the editor of today's show. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. And it's the international edition of the News Roundup. And joining us this week, Emily Tamkin, Senior Editor, U.S. for The New Statesman. Her forthcoming book is called Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Emily, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Also, Vivian Salama, National Security Correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Vivian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Amy McKinnon, national security reporter with Foreign Policy. Amy, good to have you back. Happy to be here. 
So let's start in Ukraine with President Volodymyr Zelensky. He warned of a particularly cruel Russian attack on Wednesday, Ukraine's 31st Independence Day. And it happened in the small town of Chaplin in eastern Ukraine. Zelensky says, quote, Chaplin is our pain today. As of now, there are 22 dead. Five of them were burnt in the car. An 11-year-old died. A Russian missile destroyed his house. Search and rescue operations at the railway station will continue. We will definitely make the occupiers pay for everything they have done. We will, without any doubt, evict the invaders from our land. No trace of this evil will remain in our free Ukraine. Let's make our way to victory. There will be victory, unquote. The death toll is now 25 people. Dozens more are wounded. Emily, I want to start with you. Wednesday was six months since Russia started this, quote, special military operation, as they've called it, with hopes of taking over the capital, Kiev. That didn't happen, but thousands of civilians have been killed, 12 million people displaced. That's a third of the population. What can Ukrainians expect in the next six months? I think what we've seen is that, I mean, Russia and I think many countries, many leaders expected this to be over in a matter of days Um, It has since been six months, and that's in part because of um, foreign aid, but it's in part because Ukrainians do not want to live under Russian occupation. Um, I think it's really important to note as Russia, you know, attacks civilians and and as it continues to wage this war, that this war could end tomorrow if Russia decided that it should. Ukraine cannot make that same decision. And so I think what Ukrainians are are expecting... um, is months, as many months more of war and of and of, you know, cruel uh, attacks because I don't know that they feel that they have any other choice. Emily, there's the immediate threat of a disaster at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, says it's in talks to get access to the site, which is controlled by the Russian military right now. Do you think Putin is likely to back down there? No, I, I, I don't. I don't think that we've seen anything to suggest that. Um, that his considerations are for the greater good or for, and I'm not trying to say that this is, you know, U- Ukrainians have also made clear that they're willing to continue fighting there. So, but, but I, I just don't think that we've seen anything to show that he respects international law or institutions or the well-being of civilians um, to suggest that he would say, oh, well, this is a real, you know, this is a nuclear facility. It's a real risk. And Vivian, the U.S. announced $3 billion of new military aid to Ukraine this week. Your colleagues at the Journal also reported the U.S. will name this military support mission and put a two- or three-star general in charge of it. Why is it so important to the U.S. that Ukraine keeps its territory? Uh, well, for a number of reasons. Obviously, um, this th- the any kind of a Russian invasion into Ukraine threatens not only European security, but um, global security. It is um, threatening the world order that the United States and its allies have come to advocate for so much. And it's very clear that without the support of um, the U.S. and its allies in this war, um, the Ukrainians may not have been able to hold what territory they have been able to hold up until now. And so the aid that was given to uh, by the U.S. this week to mark the six-month anniversary of the war, um, it, it's a little bit different than the presidential drawdowns that we've seen um, in some of the other packages. This was a Ukraine security assistance initiative, which essentially uses funds appropriated by Congress to finance America's um, defense industry to scale up arms production. And so this is an obvious uh, indication that the 
the U.S. sees this as its own, in, 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 within its own interest to supply Ukrainian forces with the weapons that they need. And it's important to, to note that those needs are evolving with every passing day of this war. I just got back from my latest trip to Ukraine. I've spent several months there this year. And every time I go, the reality on the battleground is so different. And the United States is trying to uh, accommodate those changes, whether it is longer range missiles, whether it's uh, shortages in ammunition. And so that's why we keep on seeing these uh, these these uh, packages go out from the U.S. But whether or not um, the U.S. can sustain it is going to be the question. So far in Washington, the sense um, is from on a bipartisan basis that it is within U.S. interest to keep Ukraine secure because you secure Ukraine, uh, an independent Ukraine uh, kind of uh, overshadows whatever would happen in the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. But um, to do that, it's going to be it's going to be a long slog. Uh, the Americans know that the Ukrainians definitely know that. And so it'll be interesting to see how things go in the future uh, coming months. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You say each time you go, it's different in Ukraine. What does that look like on the ground? It's incredible. I mean, you know, just just going into Kiev, for example, where um, people, you know, to, when I left two weeks ago, they were sitting outside um, cafes and there were live music bands at the restaurants there. I, you know, that was something that I didn't see even two months earlier when I was there. Um, Kiev has largely returned back to normal. And what we see is these attacks, like the one on the train station that we saw on Wednesday, really give people a jolt and remind them not to get too complacent. But elsewhere in the country, the war is dragging on. In the South, you have this renewed offensive that has been largely fueled by uh, the long-range missiles that the United States has recently given, the HIMARS. Um, but we're talking about trench warfare, warfare that we've not seen since the era of World War One, where you know, you're literally firing missiles from these long ranges at your enemy. That is a slow way to fight a war. And in the East, of course, the um, the Russians have the slight advantage in the fact that they're right there fighting sometimes from across the border. The Ukrainians have limitations for what they can fire across the border. They have agreed with Western allies that they will not use Western weapons on Russian territory. So what does that mean? If a Russian fire, if Russian forces fire a missile or any kind of weapons from across the border, they can't necessarily use Western weapons to fire back and they don't have the weapons otherwise that would hit that long range. And so right. there, there are a lot of, it's a conundrum for them. And definitely in the East, we're seeing a real struggle for them to hold on to their territory, not to mention recapture territory. Well, I want to unpack that a little further in a moment. And, and I think this is relevant. You know, in Congress, some want Russia to be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism for alleged war crimes in Ukraine. Right now, it's a label that the U.S. uses for North Korea, Syria, Cuba, and Iran. John Kirby from the National Security Council spoke with Jen White on 1A earlier this week about this. And he said that decision is up to the State Department. Many of the authorities that 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 a, such a designation provides you, we are already executing in terms of holding Russia accountable. Such as, I mean, they, well, I mean, just the uh, the the very stiff and stringent sanction regime that has been now put in place uh, on Russia, just unilaterally by the United States, is having it's having a real cost and consequence to the Russian economy and to Mr. Putin's ability to prosecute the war. We know, for instance, that the export controls and sanctions that we've already put in place have made it harder for him to buy the microelectronics that he needs for precision-guided munitions. Amy, why does it matter how the U.S. labels Russia? 
Well, a state sponsor of terrorism is a very particular designation that carries with it um, a lot of ramifications uh, for the country in concerned. I mean, as you mentioned, it's generally been reserved in the past for for very extreme circumstances. Um, uh, you know, for for North Korea, um, and it essentially, you know, there's 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 two kind of major impacts. Um, um, I mean, one downside is that it can curtail uh, it could curtail Russia's uh, sovereign immunity in the eyes of the U.S. courts, opening Russia to lawsuits and civil claims from uh, uh, from families of of of, of state uh, sponsors terrorism um there is some growth there ukrainian officials have been calling for this for months now and there's there's growing support on capitol hill um including from nancy pelosi but we have seen hesitancy i think from uh state department officials in taking the step which would be a significant escalation in the kind of penalties imposed on russia and i think there's a feeling within the state department and as we just heard from john kirby that u.s officials do have the tools that they need with current sanctions uh authorities to to impose uh, a high economic cost on russia for its invasion of Ukraine and, and to keep that pain, level of pain up as well. And Amy, for people who are trying to understand the big picture question of who's winning here in Ukraine, what should be would be I'm sorry, what should we be watching there? That's a really good question. And it's I mean as Emily said before, I mean, this is a war that has already been full of surprises. Um, Ukraine has certainly outperformed, I think, what anybody would have expected going into this war, um, you know, thanks to the ingenuity and the determination of its armed forces, but also the, the military supplies that it's getting from its Western allies. It's been interesting in recent weeks, I think, um, you know, and, and thanks to, I think, the long-range missiles that they're, they're now getting, uh, Ukraine is becoming increasingly bold and striking higher and higher value Russian targets reaching into Crimea in recent weeks, you know, really striking at the heart of something that was really central to Putin's popularity when he annexed uh, Crimea back in 2014. But I think, you know, I think the Kremlin is settling in for the long game. And that's one of the benefits as an authoritarian regime is they don't face elections. There is limited domestic pressure on this. And I think that Russia is backing uh, uh, that, you know, Western uh, support for Ukraine is going to wane as, you know, economic pressure, you know, as political elections start to start to bite. This week, Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered a 10 percent increase in the number of soldiers serving in Russia's armed forces. About 137,000 will join by January. Vivian, what does this tell you about President Putin's commitment to the Ukrainian invasion for the long term? Well, as one uh, Russia, Eastern Europe expert told me recently, the most patient person in this battle is Vladimir Putin. He believes that getting Ukraine back into sort of the Russian orbit um, is an existential matter. And so for him, reinforcing the military um, is an essential thing because until that goal is accomplished, and especially with their eyes on places like Odessa, the port city um, in Ukraine and other uh, very strategic uh, parts of the country, he feels that that has not been accomplished. On the other hand, though, the rate of attrition in the Russian military has been drastic in this war. And we know for a fact that uh, Russian soldiers have been fighting to the death and just 
the way that the Russian uh, government works and Vladimir Putin's government works is that they tend to just reinforce, reinforce, reinforce with little uh, regard for those lives. And so we know that so many young soldiers, Russian soldiers, have been going into Ukraine and dying, and they're just sort of reinforcing those numbers without necessarily uh, changing their tactics in some parts of the country. And so on the one hand, you can say, okay, well, Vladimir Putin is obviously in this for the long haul, but on the other hand, it is just this sort of churning out a factory of soldiers, which unfortunately, um, it, you know, it comes to a lot of their detriment. And so this is going to be an interesting pattern going forward and whether or not uh, some political domestic pressure starts to arise by just this constant uh, churning out of soldiers, that's going to be a really interesting pattern and, and uh, thing to watch in the coming years. But Vivian, you know, I have to ask, how long can that go on? How long can Putin keep replacing soldiers in this way? And and are there going to be, uh, you know, is conscription going to be part of the picture? There's always that possibility. And Vladimir Putin has... Uh, uh, has oh, so already all Russian men aged 18 to 27 must serve one year in the military, but there's this, you know, been uh, uh, for, you know, they can only avoid for health reasons or things like that. But there is this sense that Vladimir Putin would like to uh, make military service sort of a more longer term uh, thing that could, you know, support the, 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 the stability and the existence of Russia to expand Russian territory in a way that he sees is necessary. And so so um, there, there is absolutely no telling how far he would go. Obviously, we've seen that he's willing to go to drastic lengths just to accomplish um, these goals that he has about expanding uh, Russian territory. And so with little disregard for human life and these, the, the lives of these uh, poor young soldiers who have been uh, pushed out to battle, you know, he, he might do it until domestic pressure starts to build on him. And that is, that is going to be the real question, is how much internally, domestically, um, there's pushback against, against these measures. But uh, uh, without that, he can keep going. Now, this expansion of the Russian military comes after the murder of the propagandist Daria Dugina, who was killed in a car bombing. Amy, who was Dugina and why was she a target? Daria Dugina was um, a 29-year-old, as you said, kind of propagandist, wannabe nationalist, uh, public intellectual. Um, I wouldn't say she was essentially a household name in Russia, certainly not beyond national nationalist circles. Um, and so that made the targeting or the apparent targeting of her all the more curious. Um, there's been a lot of speculation that the real target may have actually been her father, who is a bit more of a prominent figure, Alexander Dugin. And he himself, you know, in many ways, Daria was a chip off the old block. He is also this kind of uh, ultra-nationalist philosopher. Um, he has been described by some as uh, Putin's Rasputin, although many uh, longtime Russia watchers say that his influence over uh, Putin has, has been overstated. Um, but both uh, Daria Dugina and her father have um, been sanctioned by um, the UK and the US for their role in disseminating disinformation and falsehoods about the war in Ukraine. Um, there's, of course, a lot of speculation about who, who may have been behind this shocking attack. Um, Russian officials were very quick to point the finger at Ukraine, although I uh, I would uh, take that with an enormously large grain of salt, uh, that they'll have resolved that investigation with a, within a couple of days. Um, but this did, of course, prompt concerns that Russia may look to um, retaliate uh, against Ukraine over these deaths. 
Right. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, is pledging, quote, no mercy for the perpetrators of the bombing. Top Russian officials were quick to blame Ukraine for the attack, while Ukrainian leadership have denied responsibility. Emily, what is the response from Russia so far? So far, they have, as you said, blamed Ukraine, and they also allege that they found the perpetrator and that it was a woman who drove off in a Mini Cooper with her child into Estonia and happened to leave an ID card at the scene of the crime, and so Estonia needs to give it back. Um, I think we should just note that this is not an administration or a regime that has a history of of being honest about what, what's going on uh, with respect to political assassinations, with respect to Ukraine, and so we should, I mean... I just think we should be very skeptical before uh, saying that Ukraine brought the war to a cultural festival outside of Moscow. You know, and, and this happens as over the past several weeks, explosions at Russian air and naval bases in Crimea have gathered global attention. Emily, should Russia be concerned that the fighting is coming home and to areas it occupies? I think. I mean, it already has. To in, in, the, in the case of Crimea, I think Ukraine has been very clear that they now consider this part of of what they're fighting for. Um, you know, it's ironic because this was considered sort of de facto settled that that Russia had Crimea um, and now it's being fought over. And I just want to um, go back to something that, that Vivian said earlier, which is that Putin sees it as, as critical to bring back to bring Ukraine back into the Russian orbit. One irony of this war is that Putin himself has pushed Ukraine and Ukrainians farther from Russia. Um, and so, you know, you can you can keep sending bodies to die in Ukraine. You can keep fighting over territory. Um, but I think uh, those of us watching this who are not Putin are wondering whether this was a productive or counterproductive measure. Meanwhile, American WNBA star Brittany Griner remains imprisoned in Russia. And former NBA star Dennis Rodman announced plans to head to Russia to try to help secure her release. The State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, was very clear in his opposition to Rodman's plan. Dennis Rodman has said he does intend to travel to Russia. Uh, he, I want to be clear, he, is, he would not uh, be traveling on behalf of the U.S. government. I've just uh, reiterated what we've said now for the past several weeks. We put forward a substantial proposal uh, to Russia uh, to seek the freedom of Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner. Uh, we believe that anything other then negotiating further through the established channel uh, is likely to complicate and hinder those release efforts. And Rodman now says he no longer plans to travel to Russia. Vivian, what is the status of the State Department's plans or efforts at least to free Griner? And might private citizens getting involved in various ways like this disrupt those plans? Well, there have been uh, multiple efforts. Uh, you know, Dennis Rodman obviously has a, a, a history of reaching out to some of the world's more uh, controversial and uh, authoritarian leaders. He's done so with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and he's even met Vladimir Putin and described him as, quote, cool in the past. And so this was not a surprise. But as far as the official channels, um, you know, the State Department has been working on her release. There's always someone from the embassy who's been um, at her. Uh, any hearings or any court appearances that she's had in recent months. Um, and they are trying through diplomatic channels to get her out. Um, they, they do believe there is some sense that perhaps um, because of the fact that she's now been sentenced, the Russian government has in some ways been able to send a message to Washington of what um, it wants, what, you know, that it's taking this matter very seriously. And now that that is 
done, the political pressure sort of has has moved on and there might be an opportunity for some sort of prisoner swap. I want to also mention there have been efforts by um, former New Mexico governor um, Richardson to get her out. And he has been he and his team um, of negotiator hostage negotiators have been back and forth trying to negotiate some sort of a prisoner swap or um, at least her release. Um, She is probably the most high profile uh, detainee. American detainee that we've seen in Russia in recent years. And so there is an immense, there is immense pressure on Moscow right now um, to take some action and to let her out. Um, But, uh, you know, particularly because the U.S. asserts the fact that she's been um, held as a hostage unjustly. But whether or not the current war in Ukraine and just the building uh, global pressure against Russia will make them use her as a bargaining chip, that remains to be seen. But so far, it does seem to be the case. Let's shift now to Pakistan. The country's former prime minister, Imran Khan, appeared in court in Islamabad on Thursday after being charged under the country's Anti-Terrorism Act. It's part of the ongoing concern among Pakistan's rulers about the superstar power Khan continues to wield. He was removed from office back in April. So, Amy, big picture, just remind us, if you would, who Imran Khan is and why was he in court this week? So Imran Khan, uh, famous to many, of course, is a famous cricketer, but he was also uh, prime minister of Pakistan from 2018 until earlier this year, um, where he uh, lost power in a vote of no confidence. It's important to know that you know whilst he's been charged under the, count, uh, the country's anti-terrorism laws, which sounds very dramatic, what he's actually been charged with is essentially what you what you might consider kind of incitement of violence or threatens of threats of violence after he vowed to take action against. Um, uh, police officials and a magistrate in his, in his speech on Sunday. Um, but critics, of course, have said that um, they see this as an attempt by the government to keep Imran Khan from the political scene ahead of general elections that are set to take place ne- uh, later this year. I mean, Khan, you know, is in some ways a bit of a kind of a, a Trumpian figure in that whilst he's no longer in power, he's still immensely popular and has this very loyal base, uh, which he has, you know, the ability to rally. And I think there's a very real concern. Uh, he's currently out on bail, but um, very real concern in the event that if he were to be arrested, um, that there could be some very serious unrest in Pakistan. We have a clip of Imran Khan speaking on Thursday. Let's take a listen. I mean, the people know what is going on. The level of political awareness is so much because of social media, because of the mobile phone. So the response was immediate. The moment my arrest warrants came out, the response just w- was immediate in the streets. So, you know, if they go the same direction, I can't say what will happen, but I feel that uh, there will be immense, huge, unprecedented street protests. Vivian, protests are not unusual in Pakistan, right? But the crowds turning out for Khan are very large. How might the power he has to do that, to mobilize supporters into the streets, influence the forces that have been trying to crack down on him? Well, those crowds are the very dilemma that is facing the military-backed establishment in Pakistan right now. And the concern by some is that the more they seek to boost Imran Khan from politics, the greater his uh, street cred, if you will, becomes because of those devoted followers who have been pouring into the streets. And so the strategy to trying to win his confidence could easily backfire on the streets He's tapped into this deep public resentment over the broken economy and the political system. 
Um, and that's something that's making the military very, very nervous. Um, Pakistan's military ha- does have a very influential role in the gu- in, in, in the in the country, um, and they believe that you know they can sort of taper this and try to bring politics and bring the street the situation on the street back to some sort of uh, norm, uh, but doing so could be at a risk because they could tip the scales in favor of Khan and, and, and really shake things up politically. And so it is a very delicate game that they're playing right now. And the military is grappling with how to handle this right now. I mean, realistically, what, what ability do they have to, for example, you know, throw this former cricket superstar and his supporters in jail? Is that something that they could do? I, that would probably be very, very controversial and problematic. Uh, you know, again, because of the fact that Imran Khan is this larger-than-life personality, um, it, it's something that would not go down very well. Could they do it? Probably, yes. But would it cause a huge backlash for them? Probably. And so this is the game and uh, that they're now toying with, trying to figure out what the right approach is here. And it's also important to note, by the way, that Imran Khan has his own allies within the military as well. And so whether or not he's able to wield those allies in his favor um, will be something interesting to see play out in the coming weeks. And Amy, what about the view from the U.S.? Is, is the potential for unrest a concern for the State Department, given the billions of dollars it sends in aid to Pakistan? Of course. I mean, uh, I mean, mastery unrest uh, anywhere in the world is always of, of deep concern to the State Department, both for the security of, of U.S. citizens in the country, um, you know, the, the stability of the country itself and, and U.S. investments there. Um, but I think, you know, one of the major concerns about this is that um, Imran Khan has begun spreading what are effectively conspiracy theories um, about the United uh, about the United States, accusing them um, without any proof of conspiring with the prime minister, um, uh, Sharif, who is seen as being uh, closer to the leaders of, of Europe and America. Um, and it, you know, it's worth mentioning that during his tenure as prime minister, um, Khan you know, shifted Pakistan as closer to to Russia and to China, um, kind of unbalancing some of those uh, relationships that the country, those longstanding relationships that the country has had. So I think the U.S. will be watching this very closely to see, you know, what impact this has on the U.S. reputation, if there's continued conspiracy theories, and, you know, in the event that Khan ever did return to power, what that would mean for the country's uh, relationships with other great powers in the world. This week, NASA released sound from the black hole at the center of the Perseus galaxy cluster. What you are hearing is pressure waves from the black hole causing ripples in the star cluster's hot gas. The sound has been edited so that human ears can actually hear it. NASA says they mixed it with other data and amplified it, but they say the idea that there was no sound in space is a misconception. So we're hearing some. Also this week, the U.S. says it bombed Iran-backed groups in Syria. That's in retaliation for U.S. troops being targeted. Amy, what is the U.S. military doing in Syria, first of all, and who's attacking them? The U.S. conducted a series of airstrikes this week against militants tied to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria. And as you mentioned, this came as retaliation to rocket attacks uh, by these militant groups on coalition bases in Syria, which left, uh, I think, at least three U.S. troops injured. Um, And these rally of of, of attacks between these militias and retaliations from the U.S. comes as efforts are underway to salvage the Iran nuclear deal. Both Iran and now the U.S. this week have sent their responses to the proposed 
proposed final text brokered by the European deal, uh, but brokered by the European Union. Sorry, and there's still a lot that remains to be seen on on whether these inputs can be reconciled. Um, but I think what these airstrikes this week demonstrate is that the the Biden administration is making it pretty clear that you know they're not going to stand by whilst U.S. personnel are put in danger, regardless of this very intensive high stakes diplomacy going on around the nuclear deal. The Syrian civil war started more than 10 years ago in 2011. The UN says more than 350,000 people have been killed since then. Vivian, which countries are involved and why? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's changed over the years, but uh, the United States has definitely maintained um, several hundred troops on the ground there, um, partially to support uh, U.S. allied forces there, um, Arab and Kurdish forces in the north. Um, But Russia has definitely played a significant role in supporting the Assad regime um, in Syria, and that has often come with a a, a great deal of conflict with the U.S. in terms of um, just uh, opposing interests, and this has been something that has been a continued issue, even with the current situation in dealing with the Russians, is that the United States keeps on saying that the reason they don't want to kind of slam the door on Russia is because there are other areas of cooperation, Syria being primary among them. And then, of course, as we've been saying, Iran has significant interests. Uh, the Assad regime has long been, and, and, and Bashar al-Assad in particular, has long been an ally uh, to Tehran. And so the Iranians have uh, have been supporting um, any efforts to keep him in power. And obviously, that's been very successful for a long time. Uh, no one thought that Bashar al-Assad would be sticking around. And now um, the Arab League is, is considering whether or not to readmit Syria into the Arab League. So, uh, you know, he's obviously survived the worst as far as any kind of political um, isolation. And then that's just the small number. Then there's the non-state actors that we could list for, you know, the next week in terms of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and those groups. So it is it has honestly been one of those situations where at some points in this conflict and, and I used to be a Baghdad bureau chief for the AP and covered Syria as well. Like we lost track of the number of countries that had interest in Syria. And the problem was that every one of them were pulling the Syrians uh, were pulling the country in a different direction. And so that is why we still see this fighting continuing a decade later. And Emily, I wonder if you could just give us a sense of the larger context here and particularly how this might tie in with talks about reviving the Iran nuclear deal. Vivian just mentioned Iran. Right. So after about 18 months, a year and a half, 17 months, um, the U.S. and Iran and the EU, which is acting as a sort of go-between, they're inching closer to reviving the Iran nuclear deal, which, as your listeners I'm sure know, came together at the end of the Obama years and then um, Trump Trump pulled out in 2018. The U.S. now says, well, Iran is in violation of the deal. Iran says, well, you left the deal. Um, So they've been trying to put this back together. Will this make things more difficult? Yes, politically it does. Of course, if, you know, if the U.S. and Iran are engaged in an exchange of, or Iranian proxies or what have you, or uh, engaged in exchange of missiles, that makes things politically more difficult for everyone, in particular for the Biden administration. But I think one thing that's important to note is that when this deal was originally constructed, it was not put together to say everything is good now between the U.S. and Iran. It was let's resolve the nuclear issue, make it more difficult for Iran to to get nuclear weapons. And then we can go to, you know, then we can work on other Iranian issues, which I think would be the response of the Biden administration now if asked, you know, why are you continuing to, to negotiate with this country that 
is putting U.S. service members in danger. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, or that we should mention here, is Israel, which is strongly opposed, or which has said it's strongly opposed to the U.S. rejoining a nuclear, nuclear deal with Iran and has said we will do everything we can to oppose Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Again, those in favor of this deal would say, okay, well, this deal is how you stop Iran from doing that. One story on our timelines, Finland's Prime Minister Sanna Marin is defending her right to party and a private life. This is after a leaked video last week showed her dancing, as she put it, boisterously with friends. We didn't have any government meetings during that week and I had time off and, and spent it with my friends and did nothing illegal. Now, the 36-year-old prime minister took a drug test after the partying video leaked. The government said Monday it came back negative. Amy, a lot of people maybe have made similar videos, those of us who are on social media, uh, especially people in their 20s and 30s. Why is this generating backlash and who's it coming from? Well, I think, you know, this speaks to the fact that, you know, she's the world's youngest head of state. And, you know, she comes from a generation, my own generation, which are a lot more comfortable with smartphones and social media. And we're just not used to seeing this uh, yet, I think, is the, is the important word there from, from officials and from politicians, because generally speaking, they're older, you know, in this country, uh, you know, some have even accused it of being a gerontocracy, you know, and I think um, it's going to be interesting as, uh, you know, as the kind of social media smartphone generation uh, ages and begins to take up office, you know, more around the world, whether we're going to see more instances of this. Um, and I think this episode also uh, says a lot about what people expect from public officials. You know, I think that in Europe and the United States, I think people still have a hard time of really adjusting to the idea that politicians are actually like us, and that they actually are mortals and can let their, their hair down in the way that we might. Um, so I think that was, was, uh, was part of the uh, uh, the, the, the curiosity in this instance. But it was, of course, it was, you know, the Finnish opposition, which are the ones that suggested she take a drug test, really took this and ran with it as, you know, political opponents are wont to do. She's not the first politician uh, to do something like this. Boris Johnson, the UK's outgoing prime minister, had boozy government parties famously in 2020 when the country was under a COVID-19 lockdown. Emily, are we seeing a double standard maybe when it comes to how leaders are allowed to spend their free time? Well, this isn't even, I would push back on the idea that this is like the Boris Johnson scandal. That was, he was, you know, he and his administration were having wine time Fridays when the rest of the country was in lockdown. Sanamarin was partying with her friends at a time when Finns can, can do that. Is it a double standard? Yes, yeah, sure. I think people are generally uncomfortable with young women, women in power, women enjoying themselves. I just, I, I don't know. If there are any Finns listening to this program, I just want to say, if this is indeed the extent of what she did, like drink with her friends, you know, yes, a model took a raunchy photo. Yes, there was a video of her drunken dancing. I just invite you to look at a given week in Washington and wonder, are you not grateful this is the level of your political scandal this week? Seriously, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't we love to be debating the same thing? Uh, Vivian, one last question about that. The Finnish prime minister told reporters on Wednesday, quote, I am human during these dark times. I, too, need some joy, light and fun. Um, could this video do political damage or, on the other hand, potentially humanize her, especially with younger people? 
Uh, it's hard to say, although so far the, the responses that we've been seeing from Finland is that the vast majority do support um, her right to have a private life and to do her own thing. I personally have been completely obsessed with this story for the last week because, I mean, like we were saying, you know, it's it, it's an amusing level of, uh, of, of controversy to be had for a political leader. But at the end of the day, um, I think the world is changing. And with social media and all the other technologies that are out there, I think most Finns actually do respond. Um, that that she should have a private life and she should be entitled to it. And, you know, obviously there are going to be haters, for lack of a better word, political opponents for any politician. But um, she seems to be weathering that storm pretty well. Thanks so much to Amy McKinnon, national security reporter for foreign policy. Also with us, Vivian Salama, national security reporter with The Wall Street Journal. And Emily Tampkin, senior editor, U.S. for The New Statesman. Thank you all so very much. If you want to catch up on both hours of the Friday News Roundup, you'll find it all in one handy podcast wherever you might want to listen. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Matthew Simonson has been producing our on-demand shows. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. This is 1A.